Comedian and Daily Show host Trevor Noah was born to a white father and a black mother in 1984, roughly a decade before the end of apartheid rule in South Africa. At the time of his birth, interracial relationships were illegal, which is why he titled his 2016 autobiography, Born a Crime. He explained the title on the opening pages when he wrote this. In any society built on institutionalized racism, race mixing doesn't merely challenge the system as unjust, it reveals the system as unsustainable and incoherent. Race mixing proves that races can mix, and in a lot of cases want to mix. Because a mixed person embodies that rebuke to the logic of the system, race mixing becomes a crime worse than treason. That quote also applies to the U.S. For more than 300 years, interracial relationships were prohibited here. And in fact, many of South Africa's apartheid laws came from policies and frameworks originating in the Jim Crow South. White supremacists often justified segregation by exploiting the fears, misconceptions, and myths about interracial marriages and families. In his book, Interracial Intimacies, legal scholar Randall Kennedy wrote, quote, Interracial intimacy was perhaps the major justification for subverting the civil and political rights that had been granted to blacks and the major reason for confining blacks to their degraded place at the bottom of the social hierarchy, end quote. The type of thinking that Kennedy describes and the criminalization of interracial relationships that Noah writes about extended far beyond the black-white divide. It still does to this day. Racial segregation remains a prominent problem in the United States, impacting all marginalized and underrepresented racial groups. The continued separation of people along racial lines is the product of systemic efforts that create and reinforce segregation, like redlining, reservations, and gentrification, as well as efforts by individuals and small groups. Like families. One way to support white supremacy has always been to keep our family units segregated. That's because families are powerful, shaping us in profound ways. Although not everyone grows up with a family, and that shapes us too. I'm Malcolm Burnley. And I'm Darylise Lyons. This is the On Being Biracial podcast. Malcolm and I are both biracial, raised within diverse family systems, exposed to multiple racial and cultural influences. We may not have been born crimes, but not long ago, we would have been. True. Darylise was born in 1983, and I was born in 1990. While that was decades after interracial marriage became legalized in the U.S., after the Supreme Court's 1967 decision in Loving v. Virginia, it's still relatively recent that cross-racial unions have been permitted by law in this country. Which means we grew up in a climate of race relations that was very different from our parents. Different, too, from a lot of those we interviewed. I tell people when my mom and dad met one another in the mid-60s, nobody ever believed we would live in a world where interracial marriage was the norm. They took their lives in their hand, but they could imagine a different America, and they took risks. So they were very hopeful, optimistic people. That's an excerpt from my interview with John Blake, a senior writer for CNN and the author of the book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. When John's mother left, he was only a couple years old, so he had no memories of her. But looking back, he reflected that her absence from his life severed him from aspects of himself. I don't have any memory of my mom until I met her later. I would later learn that she left when I was about a year and a half or two years old. It was like she was a phantom. It was like I came into the world with half of my identity was amputated. I knew nothing about this whole side of my family. My mom, they were all absent. 
That's not to say John didn't experience love, connection, community, or ancestral pride. He did with his father's side of the family, which was black. I think it made me ashamed to have a white mom. And it made me cling even more fiercely to my black identity because with my father's family, the black people in my family didn't reject me. They accepted me, my father's family. We were part of the family. They never brought up my mom. They never questioned my mom being white or our identity. And so I really identify very strongly with being black. I remember I was growing up at a time in the 70s and 80s in the wake of the black nationalist movement. So I had my curly fro and my pick with the upraised fist in my back pocket. And I just, I hated being light. I just wanted to be black and I didn't want this kind of complicated identity. So I just forced it in the back of my mind and I tried not to think about my mom or her family. In some ways, John's journey is typical of a lot of mixed race people in that his early years were filled with the weight of reconciling with his parents' differences while also finding refuge in identifying with just one racial group. It wasn't until he was a young adult that things began to shift. The journey, which eventually became the basis for John's book, began with a surprise from his father. So here I am, 17 years old. I'm about to go to Howard University, one of the elite historically black colleges. So I totally identify as a black man at this point. I want nothing to do with any the white side of my family. They've never contacted me, never heard from my mom, and I've resigned myself to believe in that she's probably dead and I'll never know. And then one day my father calls me into his bedroom and I remember he was sitting on the bed with his shirt off and his belly hanging off, you know, out over his dungarees. And the price is right was on television. And he had these Paul Mall cigarettes crushed in the ashtray next to him. And he just looked at me and he said, Hey, do you want to meet your mom? <laughs> and it was like a bombshell, but that's the type of person he was. And he just hit me with it. And three days later, I find myself, along with my younger brother, being driven to this menacing red brick building on the outskirts of Maryland. And the building looked like the set from the Shawshank Redemption. And I still don't know what's going on. I just only know that I'm about to meet my mom here. And we are guided into this waiting room with my brother. And we're waiting there. And I could hear people like moaning in pain in the background. I could also hear other people like laughing hysterically. And it's just a really weird, sad place, but I still don't know what's going on. And then a hospital orderly escorts a thin white woman out into the room. And as she walks to me, I notice that she walks like my brother Patrick. And she looks at me and she looks at my brother Patrick and her eyes light up. She's very thin and she has these Goodwill donated clothes on. And her eyes light up and she says, oh boy, John, oh boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she comes to me with her arms outstretched. And I know now that's my mom, but I don't know what to do because I've never used the word mom before. What John didn't know about his mother was that she suffered from schizophrenia. The place where he and his brother met her was an inpatient institution, but the setting didn't detract from the emotions that came washing over him. The experience affected not just his relationship with his mother, but also John's relationship with racial identity. The thing I remember also about that is that meeting began to immediately shift my racial attitudes. Because when I looked at her, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know the history of the place where she stood, but I could feel it. It was such a miserable, sad place. She stayed at a place called Crownsville Hospital. It was near the BWI Airport in Maryland. 
this place was notorious for mistreating patients. They would chain them to the beds, put them through these medical experiments. They treated them awfully. But when I looked at my mom, I thought, wow, I didn't know a white person could suffer like this. In the world I grew up in, we never saw white people. They were distant. They were the people who had everything and we had nothing. They were the people that rejected me. So I had this hostility and then I saw her and I had never felt empathy toward a white person before. So that was the first time I felt that. And I began to see that my attitudes toward race were beginning to shift. In our third episode, you heard John talk about his belief, a belief that may sound counterintuitive for a journalist, that when it comes to awareness and inclusivity around race and about just about anything for that matter, facts are less convincing than personal relationships when it comes to changing hearts and minds. And one reason why John says that is the evolution of his relationship with his mom. It was very difficult at first because when I met my mom at 17, I immediately in some sense became her caretaker. I became part of a team of people who had to really take care of her because when you have that kind of mental illness, you can't take care of yourselves. So it was a weird thing where I couldn't be a son. It's like I had to almost become her parent. And there was a part of me where I wanted to have a mom. I wanted to talk to her about my dreams for the future. I want to go to college. I want to graduate. This is what I want to do. This is how I grew up. I always wondered about you. Who were you? But I couldn't talk to her that way. And so that made me feel, it made me feel really sad, like I missed out. But fortunately for me, when I was a kid, I had a surrogate mom. I'd had a a woman that had stepped in to kind of be that maternal presence. But still, it was this tremendous disappointment that I found my mom only to realize that I had already lost most of her. And that was really difficult. However, as time went on, I began to see that what I thought I had lost, that she was still there. That same feisty woman that defied her family or community was still there. It just took me a while to see it. You'll hear more from Darylise's conversation with John later in the episode, but I found that story about his mom to be hopeful, and it speaks to the need to develop authentic and close relationships with people in order to accurately see who they are. Interracial relationships have become increasingly common, which has led to a rise in multiracial children. By no means are these things the solution to racial division, but having meaningful relationships with people of different racial backgrounds can help dispel some of our false beliefs and biases and maybe expand our ability to embrace diversity. I know for me, growing up in an environment that exposed me to family members of two racial groups as well as other biracial people informs so much of how I understand the world and my capacity to embrace differences. For other multiracial people, familial relationships can be trickier to navigate than for our monoracial counterparts. Our family connections can be painful. It's all contextual and case by case. In this episode, Malcolm and I will be tracing generations of stories, looking at experiences with grandparents, parents, and siblings from the perspective of the families we're born into, or in the case of adoptive families, the families we're brought into. Plenty of people have assumed that a rise in interracial families would result in more tolerance and less ostracization over time, but there's been substantial research showing a more complex picture than we might expect. On the one hand, public approval of interracial marriage is at an all-time high. 94% of Americans say they support it, according to a 2021 Gallup poll. That compared to only 4% from a Gallup poll conducted 63 years earlier in 1958. On the other hand, interracial families can contain unique stressors. 
A recent article in the Journal of Marriage and Family found that children of interracial partners who were not married were much more likely to experience family instability than their monoracial counterparts. Families are complicated enough, whether or not all the members share a racial identity, but differences stemming from racialized experiences and often the perception or anticipation of them can become wedges, preventing close relationships between and among people who are connected by blood. I spoke with Charlotte Gill, a professor and award-winning author, about how it took her a while to become aware of the impact of generational racism within her family and how this racism distanced her parents from their parents, as well as from their extended families. I like to say that when my parents met and got married, it basically blew up the family tree because my dad came from a very traditional conservative Indian family who had plans for him. They wanted him to marry a good Sikh girl from a family that they approved of, and they wanted him to come back to the family the way that it's very common for Indian men to return with their wives once they get married to their childhood home and to live with their parents. And my dad did not do that. And he had no interest in doing that. He married my mother. And this created a huge rift on the paternal side of my family. My father and his father didn't speak for decades. And as a result, we never got to know our grandparents. While Charlotte was aware of her parents' pain at being ostracized by their families, she never felt comfortable broaching the subject with her dad. But she did talk about it with her mom. I didn't discuss it with my dad, I think, because it was quite painful for him. It involves reminiscing and going into the past and all roads led to my grandparents. And I don't think could talk about it. But my mother, I think she was more conscious of it because she was white and I don't think had ever really had any lived experience of prejudice or discrimination until she married my father. It wasn't at the forefront of her mind, but I think it was always in her head that her children were sort of a physical manifestation of the union that she had created with my dad. So we talked about it and she always said, I never thought of you as being of a different race. I only thought of you as my children. And I think she still feels that way to this day. Her own parents didn't love the idea of her marrying my dad, but I think they kind of tolerated it a little better than my dad's side of the family did. The older she got, the more Charlotte became cognizant of the struggles and sacrifices her parents went through to keep their marriage together, and how those challenges in turn shaped her own identity. I'd always read that interracial mixed race families often have to deal with intergenerational trauma. And I thought, well, that's not me. I never experienced that kind of trauma in my childhood, not the way that there's very serious trauma that goes on in people's lives when they have very painful upheavals in their lives. War or terrible disasters happen to people. And I just didn't think that was me. But then I looked back on it and I thought, okay, there was this rupture, you know, and this continental drift between these two families. And as a result, I always knew that Half of me was South Asian, but I really had no connection other than through my father and a small handful of relatives on his side who were willing to maintain a relationship with the outcasts, even though we were not accepted by the upper tiers of my dad's paternal family. 
Believe it or not, Charlotte's experiences are fairly commonplace, even today, but more so when her parents met in London in the 1960s, which is part of the reason why, for generations, multiracial babies were put up for adoption at higher rates than their monoracial counterparts. The same laws and cultural taboos that prohibited interracial marriages led the biological parents of many mixed-race children to relinquish their parental rights. They wanted to avoid the perception of illegality that would come with keeping and raising multiracial children. But so did potential adoptive parents of all races, which meant that for most of the 20th century, mixed-race kids were more likely to languish in the adoption system than our monoracial counterparts. The feeling of being neglected or unwanted can also come from family members who are in our lives. Azaria Keyes is assistant director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at Temple's Fox School of Business. I think a lot of biracial, multiracial people can relate to a sense of feeling torn. So to speak to the broken down side of things, my first real heartbreak before a romantic heartbreak, and other than like my dad not being in my life, was being told by white family members of mine that I acted too white. And I remember with disgust, and they would tell my mom that, and they would complain to my mom about that. And I remember being hurt by that, but also I didn't even understand to them what those words meant because they, it very much was intended to be an insult, but I didn't understand how bad they thought it was to act too Black. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm acting Black because I am Black, and I'm raised in Black culture, and everything around me is Black other than my mom. And that was really hard for me. And I still hold that with me today with encountering certain family members because I was a child trying to figure out my way just as a child, race alone. But what do you want me to act white? <laughs> Which also, there's no rule book for either, but I don't pass as white. I don't look white. So that's not my reality in this world. And so of the two sides that I'm made up of, I'm most comfortable identifying with the side that I look like and present like in this world. And even when I was in the Black community, it was different in the sense that it was never mean. They would make little jokes. They would call me like little light-skinned girl, you know, who knows little light-skinned, I've always looked at it like this. If there was a war, right, and here are all the white people in the world and here are all the Black people in the world, and I'm standing on the line between them. And I asked, well, what side am I supposed to fight for? I could literally hear the white people being like, well, you're not one of us. You can't fight with us. But I can hear the black folks, just get on over here. Just come on. Just get, let's go, girl. You already know. <laughs> and that's what it is. I guess that's how I boil it down in my mind. Is like, that feels like my home. Those are my people. Because that's where acceptance has been, even if it hasn't been perfect acceptance. Where I felt broken down because of my race is really racism by just white people in general, but it feels even worse when it comes from your family. In our preparation for this series, Darylise and I and our incredible producer and fact checker, Emily, heard and read so many stories about the pain that people experience because of racial dynamics in their families and how those dynamics shaped how they were treated. We heard uplifting stories too. Here's Sarah Gaither, a psychologist and researcher of biracial identity, speaking about her grandparents with whom she had loving relationships. My grandparents on both sides of the family would always talk to us about their own respective traditions and cultures and things of that sort. So I think for me, my norm was to always think of myself flexibly and always to think on lots of things. I love that Sarah was close with her grandparents. 
Because I didn't have a relationship with my dad, I spent the first five years of my life living with my grandpa, my mom's dad, along with my mom and four of my aunts and uncles. I think that shaped me in a lot of really wonderful ways. For one thing, my granddad was like my surrogate father. Other than my mom, he was my favorite person, and I was his. In fact, he had 10 kids and 23 grandkids, and I was the only person he ever said I love you to. A few weeks ago, my mom went to her family reunion, and one of her cousins pulled her aside to tell her that my grandpa loved me more than anyone else. And when my mom called to tell me that, I burst into tears. But I know that having loving, multi-generational connections isn't everyone's experience. Yeah, it wasn't that way for me. While I had and still have two caring and thoughtful parents in my life, I didn't have much of a connection with the generation above. Most significantly, I never met my dad's dad, who felt like a missing link to the black part of my ancestry. You wrote an article about that, which we'll link to in the show notes, about your father's father, Paul, dying and how your dad told you in an email. You know, Malcolm, to me, that article spoke volumes about how disconnected you and your father both were from your grandfather and the ways in which that estrangement shaped your relationship or lack of relationship with that side of yourself. Yeah, I actually wrote that article as a way to help me process, which it did to an extent, but I still feel like without having had access to where I come from, it will always be some type of void. To borrow a line from my own story, I wrote that my grandfather loomed like a large ghost in my childhood, very much present in his absence. And I still do feel that way. Whether they're parents, grandparents, or other figures in our lives, familial rifts can lead to some deep voids, as well as to harsh feelings. Children learn from the adults around them, forming their own senses of themselves through a process of comparing and conflating their identities with those of the people they're surrounded by. And when those people are impacted by race-based animosity, it can do significant damage to interracial families. Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, a psychologist who wrote her dissertation on the topic of intergenerational race relations, noted that often running right alongside bigotry is hypocrisy. My mom is white. Her family is Jewish. My father is Puerto Rican, and my grandfather was not accepting of the relationship at all. My mother was completely disowned for marrying my father. And there was a lot of hurt, obviously, because of that, but also like kind of to take it another layer deep was that my grandfather experienced all kinds of struggles and oppressions from being Jewish and really used to tell my mom as a kid, don't be prejudiced. It's so hurtful. We don't choose who we are. We just come into this world. You can't be prejudiced against people. It's so hurtful. And so to hear that growing up and then to turn around and say, well, it doesn't apply to this though. It didn't apply to this person. And I knew some of this growing up. I think maybe I knew too much growing up, but it, it was a little obvious. In the case of Kimberly and her sister, they grew up close to her father's Puerto Rican side of the family, which ended up making them feel more culturally aligned with those ancestral roots because of the love and acceptance they received. But in other ways, Kimberly grew up feeling separated from that part of her heritage, too. I grew up with my dad, who's Puerto Rican, and my grandmother, who was Puerto Rican, living with me. And they would speak Spanish, basically, so we didn't understand. They spoke it so they could have a conversation without my sister and I understanding. My dad will say, well, you didn't want to learn. And I'm like, I didn't want to brush my teeth, but you made me do that too. But to look a little deeper on it, honestly, my dad grew up in the Bronx with three boys, my grandma, who wasn't a highly educated woman. There wasn't a lot of resources around. And I don't think that my dad saw being Puerto Rican and speaking Spanish as a positive, to be honest, Mm -hmm. that it was something that made his life harder. 
him and I have had conversations about that throughout the years because it's a little bit of a loss for me, to be honest, to not have the language in my life. This idea of disconnection is one that came up in a lot of our interviews. Disconnection from language, from culture, from family, from our own inherent lovability, from a sense of ourselves and the past we come from. Again, that's not unilaterally true. We heard a lot of stories about being embraced within families, as well as stories of admiring the grit and spirit of adventure dating back generations. Sarah Bella Rocha, a tailor from Philadelphia, told me she was always inspired by how her grandparents got together. My grandparents had moved around quite a lot. They met in China. My grandfather was coming from Philly and my grandmother was coming from Texas. And she was trying to get out the Great Depression. And I think especially from that time, a lot going on. So she saw an opportunity with the Red Cross to go to China and she got on a boat to go there and she actually learned Mandarin and was part of helping out when there was like the Japanese invasion happening. Now that's where she met my grandfather also because he was very much like a conscious objector. So he wanted to do more just service work or something of that to help in those situations that going on at that time, all that. So From there on, they moved around a lot because of the work of my grandfather, who tried to help with the YMCA building construction work. And he was in California, North Carolina, and then finally to Costa Rica, and then to Colombia, and then back. They were excited to be in the world, you know, really to see everything as much as they can and open to all those experiences, which is not easy either, you know, navigating and really trying to learn all those languages too. I appreciated Sarah Bella's desire to imagine what her grandparents must have faced. In fact, a lot of people we interviewed spoke about finding empathy for grandparents, oftentimes relatives whose views were opposed to their own, and in some cases opposed to them. I think you're alluding to actor and writer Carter O'Brien Ford. Carter opened up about how he discovered that the grandfather he loved, cherished, and adored initially rejected his parents' relationship. In fact, before he was born, both his father's parents told Carter's parents they shouldn't have children together. Apparently, my granddad, he didn't come to my parents' wedding. He didn't want to be a part of it. He was very unhappy that my dad was getting married to a black woman. And it more had to do, like, less with, like, malicious racist reasons, more like, this is our family, we're Irish Catholic, you know, all this other things. Even my grandmother told my dad, I love your wife, or I love your fiance, you know, but don't have kids. She told my dad, she said, you can't. I'm not sure you're ready or the world's ready for a biracial Ford or let alone just you raising a biracial kid. And eventually my granddad came around and my granddad actually asked my sister, who was nine years old at the time, for permission to come meet me and to apologize to her before before apologizing. Because he was like, obviously, I know that I've hurt, you know, my new step granddaughter. So he came around, he asked if he can go on a walk. He apologized. And then when... She came running back in. My mom was like, is everything okay? And she gave him permission to come meet infant me and said, I'm just really happy that he accepted God into his heart. So then he came and met me. And apparently, according to the people that were there, he said, how can anyone hate something so beautiful? When he held me up, I would go over to his house like almost every Sunday to see my granddad and my grandma. And I love spending time with them. And I used to talk to my granddad about the war a bunch and all this other stuff. Growing up, I didn't really know. I didn't know any of the stuff that I just mentioned to you. A couple of years after my grandma died and he was living on his own and everyone was worried about him. I don't know why it came up, but my mom finally told me this story about 
my granddad not coming to the wedding and all the other stuff that happened when I was like, I think I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And she told me, don't let this change your opinion of people grow, people, you know, change and everything else like that. And I don't know what it was. I think in any other situation, I wouldn't have listened to my mom because I'm, that's not the kind of person I am. My mom will be like, hey, just forgive this person, even though I am giving you this info. And I'd be like, no, I need to go fix this or I need to hit it in the front, you know. And in this situation, I don't know, it's just one of these things where like from both my parents and yeah, I would say from both my parents and my grandparents and my sister sometimes. I've always felt love and that love has really allowed me to forgive and be like, you know, I forgive whatever, whatever it is. People's capacity to forgive family members' previous rejections was something that really touched my heart too. Although I'll admit to being angry that people would be so unaccepting and racist in the first place. W. Kamau Bell, comedian, filmmaker, and the father of three multiracial daughters, shared about how his wife, Melissa's Italian-American grandpa, didn't accept him originally. So she like took me to meet him. We went to this big family event. It was like somebody's graduated from high school. And she walked me over to meet him. He was cooking on a grill and he literally didn't look up. She tried to get his attention until she realized he's not letting his attention get got. That was 2003. And it just was like set off like a series of explosions in her family and also with me like because he was around at all the family events and melissa's family is like if you're dating somebody that person needs to come to all the family events because that's how we do here and i was like i'm not going to all the family events and so it became a real sticking point until years into our relationship and i don't even know how many years but four or five it was like several years she basically sent him an email that was like which is funny to think it was an email if you don't accept kamau you're not going to see me as much and he sort of like had this, you know, come to Jesus. Literally, he's a Catholic, so he did maybe come to Pope moment. But he had this yeah. moment of clarity of like, I'm about to throw away my granddaughter over this thing that is not based in reality because I had not proven myself to be a bad person. One of the first times he actually talked to me was we went to her uncle's house for Thanksgiving. And we walked in and he gave her a hug and he looked at me and extended his hands and said, Happy Thanksgiving. And it was like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, you know, it just was like this really like I knew a lot was in that Happy Thanksgiving. And then by the end of his life, I mean, this is a dude who, again, still to the end of his life was watching Fox News, except when United Shades of America was on. Given how he behaved in the beginning did your heart shift towards him or how were your feelings towards him yeah i have a sort of a like when somebody shows you who you are <laughs> yeah. the first time but i also know that people can shift and change but you have to see it kamal also made it clear that he doesn't overly romanticize the changes he's witnessed in his grandfather-in-law I just also don't want to overstate what that means. Like, he still didn't vote for Obama. You know what I mean? Like, he still, you know what I mean? Like, it didn't bring him all the way away. He still watched Fox News. I think sometimes we think there's that movie, that famous or infamous movie, American History X, that involves Ed Norton, great actor. And I think it's Joe Torrey. It's one of the Torrey brothers who folds laundry with Ed Norton's neo-Nazi character in the prison laundry and through folding laundry together, a black guy and a white, he learns not to be a racist anymore. <laughs> folded laundry with a black guy. And I'm like, I believe you can like that black guy. I don't believe that it dismantles all of the racism in your life and in your heart. I hung out with the Klan long enough where I was like, some of these guys like me because I'm charming, friendly. I am funny. They see I'm not scared of them. That doesn't mean that they stopped having Klan meetings. One of the things I find distressing is when people act like the mere existence of biracial children will dismantle racism. It won't. 
And clearly the growth of the multiracial population hasn't eradicated white supremacy or race-based segregation or attitudes of othering. But at the same time, our interviews point to opportunities for progress that stem from multiracial families, maybe not on a societal scale, but certainly on a more intimate one-on-one level. John Blake spoke about how, after connecting with his mother, he fostered an unexpected relationship with an aunt he once despised. In every story, there's a villain. She was the villain. She and my mother's father, but she was the villain. I heard stories about her growing up that she hated Black people, that she called us zebra children, that she wanted nothing to do with us. And so when I met my mom, I had no intention of meeting her. I didn't want to meet her. But then couple years after I met my mom, I'm in my mid-20s, and I get word that she wants to meet me, my mother's sister. I didn't want to meet her, but I thought, let me meet her because she probably wants to apologize for her racism. So I, along with my brother Patrick, we meet her in Baltimore, and it was a very strange meeting because I remember seeing her for the first time and being struck by how much she looked like my mom. She was the same thinness, the same cheekbones, everything, but she was so different in her personality. She was so guarded. And we met and we made small talk, but there was no apology. Then we kept on meeting. I'm like, well, the apology's gonna come. No apology, no apology. All she wanted to do was talk about, this is your family, this is who we are, here are pictures. I didn't want that. I wanted an apology. At this time, I'm like a reporter. I'm writing about race. I'm covering Rodney King. I'm seeing all this denial about racism among white people. And now I'm seeing it right in front of my face from my aunt. So finally, one day I asked her, why didn't you reach out to me when I was younger? Was it because I was black? And she said, no, it wasn't because you're black. It's because you weren't Catholic. That's the reason. We were raised to not associate with non-Catholics. My mom was part of an Irish Catholic family. That answer only angered me because I knew she was lying, but she couldn't admit her racism. And then I just wrote her off. I just went on about my life, becoming a journalist, writing about race, forgetting her. But she kept on writing me all these letters year after year. And I would open them, there would be no apology. And then I started not opening them. And I put them in a little plastic box under my desk where they just grew into a mound. This pattern went on for years. But then one day, after having a racist encounter with a stranger, John decided to give his aunt some grace. So what I did right after that, I went up into my office and all those letters that she had written, I began to open them and read them one by one. And after I read them, I felt like such an idiot because everything I wanted from her was in those letters. She apologized for her racism. She said, I was ashamed to have two black nephews. She said, I grew up in this all segregated white world. Even when we went to school, we never even talked about black history or civil rights. She said, I only thought that the only people who were racist were black people. And she said, if you want nothing to do with me, if you hate me, I understand, but I wanna have a relationship with you. And it just humbled me and I reached out to her And we started talking and we became close. And one day I remember something weird happened. I was talking to her about my mom and I was supposed to do something I had forgotten. And I told her, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. I should have told you. I told this to my Aunt Mary. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. We're family. Now those are just two simple words. But for her to say that after all we had been through was just a huge thing. And she just changed. 
this person who voted for Trump, who was in denial about a racism, once sent me all these messages about Black Lives Matter and how she admires John Lewis. And she's just, her politics, her whole attitude about racism has changed. And it was just weird to see that change, but it's also very hopeful to see it. But it's not just what our families think about race and about us as mixed people that impacts our lives. It's also other people's assumptions and opinions about us and about our families. Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional who supports museums and cultural organizations in Philadelphia, spoke about how simply because she's the daughter of a black dad and a white mom, people have superimposed her parents' decision to be together onto her in a way that feels unfair. A lot of the times it seems like parentage is actually what many people are fixated on versus the actual biracial experience. Yeah, my parents are a part of my experience, but I'm not my parents. I am me. I know and I understand and I try to keep myself open to understanding more that there is a lot of hurt that goes into seeing Black people date outside of their race. I understand it. I see it. And I've definitely heard some very left comments, not left, politically left, but I've I've heard some people that kind of go off the deep end as to why they date outside of their race. So there's a lot of anti-Blackness, anti-Black women that can go into why Black men date and marry outside of their race. That's one piece of it, but it's hard to have that as your frame of mind and then speaking to someone about their biracial experience. These are apples and oranges. They're related. That's a grapefruit and an orange. Yeah, it's just something that I just, I feel the contention and it's hard for me to speak towards that because that's not my lived experience. I understand it. I am a product. That's weird to put it that way. I'm a product of it, but it's not me per se. And yeah, absolutely. There's always more conversations that can happen, but it is weird and difficult to justify my parents being together, especially since I'm their daughter who they love very much, you know, and and I love them very much. I didn't grow up even seeing my mom as white or my dad as black until I reached a certain age. Hannah's reflections were really powerful. And also, Malcolm, so was the question she asked when you and I did our series of interviews on Word Radio, and she called in. For a sense of context of those listening, Word Radio has a show called Evening Words, which at the time was hosted by Nick Taliaferro. And Nick had Lisa and myself on to talk about on being biracial. Anyway, here's Hannah. So I had a thought and a, and a question for you. My thought was, I appreciate that your podcast, you seek to approach this conversation from a clean slate, because something that I've come to see in my lifetime is that so often biracial people are oftentimes approached not only asking about their identity, but also essentially the choices of their parents, answering to their parents' choices, choice to have them. We'll put a link to all of those Word episodes in the show notes. And we should also note that Word is a partner and a sponsor of this podcast. Hannah's calling question is a hard one to answer, but it's an even harder thing to experience. In my interview with Hannah, she and I spoke about how sometimes biracial people get questions about their parents' experiences. I found her words really powerful, and so here's me sharing that with her, and then her describing the way she's internalized some of other people's opinions. Why did my dad choose to be with my mom? And it's crazy, because I wouldn't exist. Exactly. (laughs) It's such a weird, but and that's the thing that it's, I appreciate that you said that, because I actually had a moment where in African American studies at Temple, and we're in a class that somehow the subject came onto biracial relationships. I think I was probably one or maybe, I don't know, everyone's a little biracial, but I was the definite biracial kid in the class. And the professor 
she did not agree with interracial relationships at all. And that was kind of the conversation was why interracial relationships. But the consensus of the class was no. And the professor was like, no, changed my mind. And I was like, I, here's my moment. But I had no idea what to say as I was answering this question. But essentially it came out all jumbled and terrible because that's what happens when you're in class trying to make a point. And I just remember being shot down because of so many people. I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I think I think. And I was like, yeah, you know, my parents probably shouldn't have been together. I know that, you know, maybe my dad does hold some resentments towards Black women in the Black community. We don't talk about it, but maybe it's possible and maybe it's probable. And I and I remember I, I said, and I still to this day regret that, like, because someone had brought it up to me again later. And I was like, yeah, I know that my family essentially, and I to this day, it just hurts to think that I thought that, but I felt like my family was a mistake. It's a horrible thought to think my parents should never have had me, but it's one many multiracial people have had when on the receiving end of negative perceptions of interracial relationships. Carter shared about how he actually told his parents that maybe they shouldn't have had him. I'll note that he doesn't feel that way anymore, but it was a painful thing to feel and painful for them to hear, especially given that it echoed the sentiments his grandparents shared before Carter was born. I remember... A little bit before the pandemic, I was going through a really hard time and I was crying outside on some random street outside like my aunt's house with my dad because I was just having like a manic episode and I was, maybe your mom was right. Maybe you weren't ready. You know, I said something very rude to my dad and my dad was crying and he was just, you know, maybe I wasn't, but I'm just doing my best, bud. And I was like, I know, you know, it's just true. It was one thing I didn't know for me. For that situation, before I talk about my granddad, it was like, especially in therapy, I talked to my mom. My mom is like, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I did not know how to raise a biracial son. And I'm just doing my best. And my dad was like, I thought love was the only thing that would carry us through. And I did not know. And for me, it was even weirder because as much as I kind of hated myself growing up and I was like, I don't know how to be a biracial person. I don't have any role models. No one's telling me what the cookie cutter path is for a biracial person who looks like me. The big thing for me, especially when it came to trying to make other people happy, I didn't know how to be a biracial son to specifically a white father and a black mother, a very proud black woman and a very just let's go with the flow. I love life. White Irish dad. They both were like both amazing people in very different circumstances, but in a household with me, it didn't match up. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To find out more, go to resolvephilly.org PJC. One of the things that may not be easy for others is that we biracial people are a reminder of the interracial relationships that produced us. To use the old saying, our existence is resistance. Or we could go with a different, less politically correct saying. Here's Tyler Sloan, an actor and artist from Canada. Not to be crass, but when people are like, how are you like that? I'm like, I don't know. A Scottish person and an Irish person, they fucked. Right. And then et cetera, et cetera. 
it's sometimes easy to forget in today's world where conversations about racial diversity and equity are omnipresent that it hasn't been all that long since Richard and Mildred Loving were sentenced to prison for getting married in Virginia. And globally, even if laws directly banning interracial marriages have become less common around the world, interracial relationships have been shamed and socially prohibited in many places for centuries. So maybe it's not surprising that the idea of biracial children being made to feel guilty for our parents' actions or tainted by our parents' sins is one that came up a lot and in some ways potentially places a lot of weight on the shoulders of young ones, but not always. Rachel Goh, creator and host of the Mixed Movement podcast, told me about her experiences. She was raised by two white parents. When I was very little, I was probably the age of three or four. This is my very first memory. My mom had told my sister and myself, we were in the basement and she sat us down. She said, girls, I have something to tell you. Say, okay. She said, I just want to let you know that you two don't have the same dad. And I looked at my sister who was older and she was like, does that mean that we're still sisters? And she said, of course, and I will always be your mom. And we're like, okay, and just carried on. The story of how Rachel came to be and of how she and her sister have different dads led to some complicated family dynamics. But Rachel never felt burdened by the circumstances of her birth. I don't remember when exactly I got the information of my mom had an affair, but I was given that information and I knew that wasn't right. I knew that was a wrong, but that was part of my story. That's how I explained it to my classmates. So for me, Knowing that and saying that my mom had an affair, my hands are up in the air. I didn't have anything to do with it. I know that she did something wrong. So it took that off of me. And I was also very proud of the fact that my mom told me that there wasn't a lie. And I was honestly very proud of her for being open and honest about it. And giving that information to a child, you can't discern for them who they tell that to. So I'm like, well, this is the fact. Yeah, well. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so your I mom didn't, was pretty didn't really brave. feel bad because this is what my mom told me. So I didn't really hold that weight. Something Rachel noted was that many multiracial kids tend to have complicated origin stories. This is one thing that I will note that I find fairly common amongst biracial people is a lot of us were put up for adoption or there was some sort of taboo against our coming to be. My mother was married to her husband, who is Caucasian, had an affair with my dad, who is African-American. I'm still piecing some things together which is crazy at this point in my life, but this is just the way it is. My mom and my sister's dad who adopted me and is my dad, which I feel very fortunate for, and my biological father all knew before I was born that I was not my mom's husband's child. So I feel very blessed. I feel very lucky for having my parents in my life because I know that is not always the story. But that being said, my mom did what she thought was best. And my sister's dad, I had his last name growing up. He paid child support for me. He took me to the daddy-daughter dance. I am his little girl. So I don't know if she just tried to keep the peace and respect him as well. Or I also recently learned that 
my biological father would come by every once in a while, which I did have memory of every once in a while growing up, but my half siblings didn't know who I was. So I don't know if that was why I really didn't have more regular communication with him or what, but that's all I know. I knew the facts. It was all very confusing as a child, but stepping back and looking at my story, I know how absolutely loved I always have been, although it's been confusing. (laughs) In addition to the confusion that can come about for those of us children who come from different racial backgrounds, especially when there are extenuating circumstances around our conceptions or when relationships with one or more of our biological parents may be distant or non-existent, those raising us can feel at a loss for how to support us. Even the most well-intentioned parents hoping to be helpful and positive can frame their child's racial experiences and or identities differently than we might frame things for ourselves. Here's Azaria speaking about a conversation she had with her father. It's interesting because my dad having such a complex relationship being out of my life for so many years, when he is in my life and he's, he hasn't currently is in my life, he has been in my life for consistently several years now but prior to when it was still touch and go whenever he would come around he would really try to not be the bad parent he didn't want to be the bad guy and that included talking about my identity so he would always just say you get the best of both worlds and it wasn't until recently where I called him out on that and I was like can you stop saying that because I don't feel like that's fact for me I was like I need you to know that I identify as black and it was like he took the hat off, what he had been wanting to say this whole time, but just couldn't say. And he goes, that's my baby. I'm so proud of you. You better own it and claim it. And he was so proud. And it made me sit there and think, were you saying that all along because you knew that I was probably going to face struggles throughout my life? So you wanted me to feel just great about everything. Like best of both worlds, but really in his heart as a Black father, he wanted to own what he knew the world would see me as, and he really wanted me to be proud of that. It's understandable that Azaria's dad would want to speak about her biracial identity in ways that seem purely positive. This is something many parents do, including my own mother. And for me, that's been a source of gratitude. We never spoke about me having the quote-unquote best of both worlds because my experience wasn't that. I didn't feel like I had the best of both worlds, but rather that I could enter into different spaces and feel wanted and welcomed in a variety of settings by people of many different races. Then again, I'm not white presenting. Biracial people who appear to others to be white often have very different experiences than I did. And understandably, they're likely to have had different racial preparation at home, even sometimes than their own siblings. Here's Sarah again. Yeah, I think first having two parents who look phenotypically very different. My mom's very white looking. My dad is a typical dark skinned black man. I think a lot of people ask me, oh, is your dad a real black man? That kind of awkward question, like, what does that mean? I think they always assume my dad must be a very light skinned, racially ambiguous person, but he's definitely not. So already that contrast right between my own parents, when we go out to restaurants or wherever, I would see night and day differences in how they're treated by society. And then my younger brother, even though he's younger than I am, him getting these types of conversations from my dad that I never got made me jealous sometimes. There can be a unique and particular experience that biracial people have growing up in families where one or more parents have had racialized experiences that they'll never have. Journalist Lisa Funderburg is intimately familiar with that. 
Elisa wrote the seminal book, Black, White, Other. She also edited and curated a more recent book called Apple Tree, Writers on Their Parents, and talked about that with Dara Lees. I loved that book. I know it's my book, but I love that book. And I can say that because I didn't write the essays in it. But I think that I've come to an age where I look both ahead and behind me in life and really have come to appreciate and relish, really, the ways in which I feel the echoes of generations. Whereas as a young adult, if I saw myself acting like one of my parents, I was more inclined to run in the opposite direction. I'm going to be my own person. And now it's just, it's a different experience. And it informs my way of being in the world. In the case of my dad, when I recognize a behavior in myself that is from him, even if it's not a positive behavior, it's like he's come to visit me and I feel like our relationship carries on. So this book was about having that conversation, about hearing from interesting people about the ways in which they see themselves carrying on something from their parent and how it informs their sense of being in the world, their relationships, how they parent themselves. And it started actually with something that had to do with race for me. So the spark for the book was that I was teaching at the local university and I had to go spend three hours in a basement with no windows and thought I really need a cup of coffee. So I went to the Starbucks and I got my coffee and I walked outside and threw the cup away, even though there was still half a cup of coffee in there. And I did it almost like a muscle memory. And I thought, why did I do that? And I realized I had this sense of a prohibition against drinking in public. I had this sense of needing to attend to my comportment on a public street. And I thought about where did that come from? In America, people are eating and drinking on the street all the time. Maybe in France, you'd feel differently, but not in America. And I remembered decades earlier being a teenager, walking not far away from where this Starbucks is in my childhood neighborhood. And my dad drove by. He was a local realtor. And so he was constantly showing people's houses, putting signs up, taking signs down. And he drove by and he rolled his window down. And this was after my parents split up when I was around 12, but my dad always lived one neighborhood away. So never far apart. But anyway, he drove by and I was drinking a soda. I think it was Black Cherry Wishniak, my favorite. And he said, should you be drinking that on the street? And my dad was a very authoritarian figure. And if he asked you a question, you would answer immediately. But in that moment, as I remember it, I was so stunned by the question. It didn't make sense to me in my world. And my world was so different from his world. My world was in this hippie, dippy neighborhood in the civil rights era where I was surrounded by people like my own family, very relaxed. And he was from the Jim Crow South, where his father never left the house without a necktie. His mother wasn't allowed to shop alone in the town square. He would watch the chain gang from his front porch. You could be put on the chain gang for any real or imagined offense. How you acted in public really mattered. And I thought, isn't it fascinating that I contain this 
And I didn't even realize I contained it. I'm a full-blown adult. And this is layered in there. And it wasn't something I needed to know. I, again, white presenting, female in a safe and comfortable environment. This was not something I needed for my own survival. But if there was a value in it, even though it wasn't specifically useful to me, it was a reminder of how the world works. We inherit a lot from our parents. The things we do, the values we hold, the various behaviors we see and replicate, and also racialized trauma. One upside to parents who don't share the multiracial experience of their children is that for both the parent and child, there's a proximity to another way of looking at the world. Over time, hopefully that creates more empathy and awareness all around. Evan Fongjeroff, who is of Chinese, Cuban, and Russian Jewish ancestry, spoke about how his father has become more cognizant of his privilege as a result of raising biracial sons. And he contrasted his dad's easy entry into spaces with an experience that his mother had. I think my dad will be fine with me saying this because he and I have had more chats about this, but he said, you know, it's something he dawned on him as he said, as a white, older white man, if I put on like a button down shirt and a blazer, I can walk in anywhere and no one's going to question why I'm there. And then my mother, I remember an experience, she was driving my, my stepfather is English and his family was visiting and she was driving them up to Niagara Falls and they rented a van and kind of drove up and on the way back into the US, they were stopped by immigration. And the only person that they wanted to see the papers for was my mom. And she said, this is ridiculous. I'm the only US citizen. All these white Brits are not from the country, but she was the yeah Asian woman driving that van and they questioned her and they didn't question the others. So I do think it's interesting to have parents who had very different experiences moving through the world in different ways. And for some, I think like the, what is it? The definition of privilege is not having to think about certain things, right? You can kind of fly under the radar or you're not met with it head on. And so I do think being biracial at times you're met with both of those. Sometimes there's definite privilege that comes with not being questioned. And other times you do get stopped. And I think that makes it hard to understand where do I fit? One thing that was interesting to contemplate was how this idea of fitting may or may not differ between children of monoracial parents and children of parents who themselves are multiracial. We didn't come across any data about that specific topic, but we did find some very fascinating research about racial identification across generations, an academic article from 2018 entitled The Generational Locus of Multiraciality and Its Implications for Racial Self-Identification. It showed that the children of monoracial parents are more likely to identify as multiracial in comparison to the children of multiracial parents. In other words, in a multiracial family, as the generations go on, people are actually less likely to identify as mixed and more likely to identify with one race. Those findings suggest that while the population may continue to become more racially mixed, we shouldn't assume that more people will embrace the label of multiracial, which reminds me of a clip from my conversation with Jordan Davis, who, despite both his parents being mixed, ended up becoming involved in white supremacy groups. One thing that I think is really rare about your experience is that you had two parents who are both multiracial, biracial, mixed race, however you want to say that. And I've got to tell you, of all the people I've interviewed, you're the first person that's been the case. So what was that experience like? You already have parents who are going to know 
and understand at least the nuance that comes along with mixed race identity. Because probably maybe in the case of Obama or maybe even your case with the fact that you two people have monoracial parents, they may not exactly understand the nuance and just the uniqueness that comes along with just being even mixed race. But when you actually have parents who have also experienced the questions like, what are you? Or are you Puerto Rican? Are you Cuban? Which I'm pretty sure we all get on a consistent basis. They get that. In the case with my mom, she understands fully what me and a handful of my other brothers go through as far as people mistaking us for something else that we actually are not. Because although I tell people that, no, this is what I am, and no, I'm not Dominican, I'm not Cuban, but thank you very much, but I do have a lot of respect for those Caribbean cultures. In the case of my mom, she gets that because she even gets those questions too, to where people come to her and speak Spanish to her all the time. And it's happened to me too over here in Southern Nevada. So she gets it and she just understands again, just that nuance that comes with it, that probably a monoracial person is probably not going to fully get. They may get the idea or the concept or at least try to understand maybe the details of just the uniqueness that comes with that, but they're probably not gonna understand it fully. But in the case of me, you, and my mom, and even my father, we all get it 100%. For Jordan, his parents getting it may have been affirming, but it wasn't everything. He still learned to hate parts of himself. And although he's moved beyond that early life self-hatred, he did share that although growing up without his father in his life didn't impact his material security, it did impact his self-esteem. I think at least in my case, I don't really feel like it made a huge impact just because of just how successful my mom was at raising three boys on her own. But I will, however, say is that I feel as though had he been in the picture more, then I probably would not have developed into the person I became and that I probably would have felt a lot more inclined to just embracing myself fully without feeling a need to hate a part about myself that I can never change. I just feel that there's just like that fatherly or masculine energy that a man is able to provide for his son. And I really feel like that in itself can influence positively on his son. But since I probably didn't have that, I feel like maybe it probably slowed me down a little bit. But thankfully, I can say that at this point, it could have been worse. And I could have been stuck in the same mindset that I was in just about three years ago. The circumstances of who raises us, how wanted or unwanted we feel, and the structural barriers we or even our parents face can very much shape how we relate to the world and how we find our place within it. Actor Tyler Sloan was adopted by and raised by a white woman. Although their mother told them about their biological ancestral roots, Tyler's proximity to whiteness at home and in their community left them feeling simultaneously loved and out of place. I had all of these tidbits of identities that I was told by my mom, but I did grow up with a sense of indigeneity because of New Zealand. Like my formative years and a lot of therapy <laughs> has like thrown that I had a connection to the Maori culture. And especially because New Zealand is a place, where, at least where we were in Paihia and then later in Auckland, that everyone was tan. 
and everyone was brown. I was raised in that. And then we had to come back to Canada for some family reasons. And when we came back, I remember the first time that I saw my mom who raised me, her sister and her sister's kids who are all white kids. And it's like the dead of winter, it's like October. I'm in the prairies, which is very cold. And everyone was, they were very pale and they were all rosy cheeked. And I cried the first time I saw them because yeah. I've never seen white pale people. And they were actually the kind of first instance of racism that I navigated. But that began to inform how I moved in the world because when I was in Paihia, the othering that you experience as a mixed race person, let alone as a visibly racialized person, I didn't experience up until I came back to Canada. The first year and a half that I came back, everyone was like, you're from New Zealand. And because I had my stepdad, Cliff, was from New Zealand, people, the kids and everyone saw that. So I was like, for me, I was like, I'm a Kiwi because I had no understanding of what it meant to be indigenous or at the time what I thought was Dermot. I didn't understand what those two things were. I only knew what it meant to grow up in Paihia and learn the haka and wear a uniform for school and live by the Pacific Ocean. That's how I identified. By the time I got to grade there was like a there was like a little blip moment where we moved 15 kilometers away from the town I grew up in, Sylvan Lake. There's another town or city rather called Red Deer. I moved away for six months, but like object permanence for the seven or eight year old is slim. We moved to Red Deer. I hated Red Deer. And so my mom, so gracious, so loving, was like, let's go back to Sylvan Lake after six months. I came back and everyone was like, you're not from New Zealand. Because then they forgot about that. Hmm. And at that time, my stepdad and my mom broke up. And then my stepdad went back to New Zealand. So then it was just me and this white lady. Everyone's like, you're Canadian. And I was like, okay. And I would occasionally be like, I'm also, I never really actually probably when I was young used like Ojibwe or Ojibwe. Probably like I'm an adoptee, especially because my mom, this is the thing about whiteness that like microaggressive whiteness that is hard. She was like, you're mine. You're my kid. She's like, even though you didn't, I come from my womb. You're my kid. We're Scottish, even though they don't practice any culture of Scottishness. They're right. like, you're Scottish, you're Canadian. That's who you are. And because white folks have done that divorce, like the European migration has done that divorce, or at least some have, not all. I was like, okay. To be clear, it's not only white parents whose identities can become dominant within families. Noura El Marzuki, a climate justice advocate, and Zayn Hassanain, a music therapist, spoke about how each of them separately navigated their Egyptian-American households. Here's Zayn. Noura and I have a lot of shared experiences because we both have Egyptian fathers and American mothers. And even though my mom is Jewish, Noura's mom, I think, is Catholic, there's a dynamic I don't want to say it's an, an, a stereotype or an archetype of the Egyptian father and the role they take. I mean, I think that those exist in a lot of, I mean, maybe it's just the archetype of the father, but there's a very kind of hyper-masculine, hyper-dominant, hyper-the-in-charge role that the father takes in traditional Egyptian society. And I think both of our dads also come from very low income and were able to get out of Egypt and live a life outside of Egypt. So they have a particular vision for what they wanted their children's experience to be. And well, speaking for my dad anyway, I think my dad thought it would be easier to raise a mixed child than it actually was for him because of 
the kind of changes that he had to make in his own life to adjust to a new society and wanting his kids to be American or global citizens, but still wanting to raise in the way that he was raised, but then marrying somebody who comes from a totally different culture who they might share. My parents shared a lot of the same values on like education and I would say acceptance of other people's differences and a love of culture and all of those things. But when it came to things like religion and I mean, religion being the big one and really some of the generational views on religion that my dad has, you know, as like a, someone born in 1945, he's gotten more conservative with age. And here's Nura. One differentiation I would say between my father and Zane's father, and I wonder if it has to do with my father living in the U.S. versus your father living in Egypt. But I've noticed over the last 10 years or so that my father used to be very strict. But it seems like in his older age, he just wants us to be around him. The one rule for us growing up was like marrying a Muslim. And currently my sister introduced her non-Muslim boyfriend over the last year who's been in our spaces. He's not as forceful as he used to be and is more accepting or ignoring or just trying to give a blind eye to it. Alcohol, for instance, there was no, no alcohol allowed in our family. And then... My brother had a wedding with an open bar and things like that. In some ways, I feel like my father's held on a little tighter to culture in certain ways. But when it comes to like his enforcement of stuff right now, I feel like it's changed a little bit. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events and become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Over the course of our interviews, Darylise and I heard so much about the various joys and pains of growing up in interracial households. To be clear, any household, interracial or monoracial, will have its range of experiences and challenges, but there are particular experiences that seem to be unique to those of us who grow up with parents whose races and cultures are different from one another and different from ours. And it's not just inside the house that we see the various impacts of interracial family dynamics. So many racial moments occur in the world, but then we might go home and process these moments with the people who are raising us. Samante Cruz, a metalsmith based in Canada, said something that I think captures exactly what you're talking about. My dad's from the Philippines. He was born there and he immigrated to the States by joining the U.S. Navy when he was 19. And then my parents met in California when he was stationed there and... 
the first six years of my life, since my dad was in the Navy, we moved around a lot. So the first six years of my life was actually spent in the South, in Virginia. And I have really potent memories of understanding like the first few lessons around race. And it was very polarizing in the South. It was very clear <laughs> that there was racism going on. People would use the N-words pretty much nonchalantly. And as a young kid who's looking in the mirror and <laughs> looking at their dad, looking at their mom and not like knowing that something is different, I think for me, it set the foundation for understanding a lot of my other identities in terms of being mixed race or multiracial and understanding and witnessing racism as a child. It laid the groundwork for me to understand differences in sexuality or gender and understand that it's nuanced. Things have never looked black and white to me. They always look gray <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean that makes a ton of sense and also with seeing things well when you're a kid there's so much noise right and you hear other kids or even adults you know making these broad statements and i think it can be really hard to know how to navigate that or you know is what they're saying about black people or white people or whatever is that really true but i think some of the experience of being mixed that I've really gathered from this podcast is very much what you just said too, is from a young age, understanding nuance, you know, as you put it. And I'm wondering if, did that come at all from direct conversations with your parents? Do you remember them talking to you about race or do you think that mostly came from your own interior world and observations? I think I was definitely influenced by witnessing the racism and the polarization that was around me when I was super young. And one memory that I have that is probably the strongest and most intense early memory that I have, maybe four years old and clearly not understanding race or racial slurs, that kind of a thing. But in the car, you're just driving. I don't even know probably just running errands or something like that. I was with my mom and my dad. And just out of the blue, I said that my dad was an N-word. And clearly, I didn't know what the hell I was saying. My dad laughed. He's Filipino. And my mom looked horrified. <laughs> and her looking at me is burned into my brain. It yeah, was like, as I said it, I was like, oh, shit. She was like do not ever <laughs> say that word. Like she was just like, nope, that's not what's happening. And like, I was like, oh shit, I didn't know what the hell, but I, that's the last time I ever said that word, never again. But that's an interesting moment though, right? Because yeah. you are picking up on race. Of course, you don't have all the language, but with identifying your dad in some so way as a minority in that instance, right? Yeah, so intense. Even now, thinking about it, I'm like, how the heck did that come? But we are products of our environment. That word is being thrown around. I'm going <laughs> to, little kids are going to throw it around too. I think one of the ironic things about it is we moved from Virginia when I was around six or seven. We moved back to Washington State basically because they didn't want us to grow up in like racist South, essentially. And one of my earliest memories going to school in Washington is a school 
at recess or something like that, one of my classmates calling me the N-word. And of course, that triggered my memory of me calling my dad the N-word and just like the irony of moving away from Virginia to escape racism and being called the N-word in a small town in Washington state, like you can't escape it. We can't escape racism, not in a small town in Western Virginia, and certainly not when growing up in a home or holding an identity where racial moments are inevitable. At the same time, having access to multiple cultural and racial influences can offer exposure to different methods of interacting with the world and can illuminate the inherent diversity that exists within our families and in our larger society. Here's Evan Fong Jeroff again. Most things are like Freudian and go back to your parents. My father's Russian, American, Jewish, and my mother's Chinese Cuban. My mother is a very outward, robust, boisterous woman who would always say, be proud of who you are and what you are. And I think my dad was, is definitely a bit more reserved and probably is very analytical, thinks a lot, questions things more. So that's probably a, a bit more reserved. It comes from trying to balance the two, maybe my outward persona and then my inward persona as well. I think also I'm a one of two. I have an older brother and I'm the younger brother. My older brother has always been very smart and you know, there's some definitely some competitiveness, whether it be within school or sports. So that comparison has existed for a bit. Evan shared about how growing up with his brother highlighted experiences that could occur on the basis of race. And he told Darylise that he and his brother have had very different personalities and have also gone in different directions in terms of integration and assimilation. I remember very early on, he probably had more negative interactions with being different than I did, or at least he internalized in that way. And I remember like really early on when I was little, my brother came home from school one day and he was crying. And my mom said, Aaron, what's the problem? And he said, I was getting made fun of all these kids were calling me Chinese and making fun of me. And then my mom said, Aaron, you are Chinese. That's something to be proud of. And so, you know, I'm a little kid in the background. I see this interaction with my brother. He's upset. I hear what my mom said. And then maybe because I didn't live that experience, what I took away from it was you got to be proud of who you are. And yeah, if other people don't see the value in that or aren't proud, then they're not people worth hanging out mm-hmm. <laughs> with. So yeah. maybe that was a bit more, I had a bit more of a, of an extreme view and, or I would want to seek out people who saw value in differences. Even though I haven't had a direct conversation with my brother about this, you know, I think maybe he chose more to try to fit in and really assimilate. And I, Either maybe I, because I couldn't do it as well, or I just didn't want to spend time or energy doing that as much. I wanted to set myself apart from that. Multiracial siblings growing up in the same house can and often do have vastly different experiences when it comes to how the world receives them. Malcolm, that's something that came up in your conversation with Barbara Idelis Abadia Rexash, an anthropologist and podcaster who works at San Francisco State University. I was born in 1980. I'm the youngest. I have two other siblings. They both are boys and they were born with light skin, blue eyes. They changed to greens. But since I was born, I always remember people asking me or my mother or my father if we were from the same father because we don't look alike. And people asking me, what are your green eyes? Like, this is something wrong that I don't have green eyes as my brother's. The memories that I have regarding race while growing up are very problematic and traumatic in some way, because what's always the questioning about why I'm 
blacker than my siblings, why my hair is different. So the race has been always in my mind. This is something that has been with me forever. And I have been struggling to accept and to avoid the internalized racism because I remember my grandmother, my father's mother, she always was making fun of my nose and saying, you look like Ruth Fernandez, a Black Puerto Rican musician, or you look like Rafael Jose, another Black musician from Puerto Rico. And they are really talented and there's nothing wrong with them. But as a kid, you don't understand why she's saying that to me or that I choose use like a pinche de ropa to, to put the clothes in my, to put it in my nose to perfilar, to put it more thin. My I received my first hair relaxers when I was in first grade. It was something that my mom did for negotiate my past in this world <laughs> that don't accept my hair, my natural hair as professional or clean, etc. So I know that I'm a Black person since the first day I was born. Sarah Gaither also noticed that her experience of race was different than that of her brother's. She is white presenting, whereas her brother is more phenotypically biracial. So I do have one younger brother. He looks a little more stereotypically mixed than I do. So we always joked how he got more of the Black genes in the family than I did. That meant we were also socialized differently, too. He was prepared for bias and discrimination experiences I wasn't going to be facing. I was, of course, socialized for being a woman and those kinds of experiences. But it made lots of fun, unique conversations within our family structure, too. In our seventh episode, Zane discussed the appearance-based differences between his experiences of being multiracial and those of his brother. But his words bear repeating. I wrote a song when I was in Portland before I moved out here about my relationship with my skin versus my older brother's skin, because my older brother is darker than I am. My sister's lighter than I am. She always makes the joke that the printer ran out of ink. But (laughs) it's a funny one, I know. (laughs) Credit to Amber Hassanin. I wrote this song about my brother. It was me trying to lay out how I walk through the world being seen one way, and my brother walks through the world being seen differently. But we're the same genes. We're the same parents and we have the same upbringing. I'll name some of the lines. I can hide behind my bluish eyes. My olive skin I wear as a disguise. The desert air is in my breath. The longest river in my chest. I've waited long enough. How long will it be before they look at him the way they look at me? That was really me trying to find out for myself why there is this different connect, this different way that we are perceived when there's so much more that we are than just our phenotype, what we look like on our skin. Did you share that song with your brother? Oh yeah. He loves that song. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was a big fan of my band. It can feel validating to have a sibling recognize and reflect back what we are experiencing and also support us in our journeys. I know one of the things Azaria appreciates about her relationship with her younger sister is that they talk about their racial identities, even if their experiences differ on the basis of appearance and ability. So it's really interesting. Between the two of us, my sister looks like less Black than me. I think when most people look at me, they can tell I have some amount of Black in me. 
And my sister, the only way that you can tell is she has jet black 4C hair. So she has an Afro and she has always had that. And that is hair in the black community is such a important part of our identity. And so my sister has really come to owning her blackness through her hair journey with her locks. I think her journey is so different because unfortunately, I think before her black identity comes forward, it's her identity of being a woman with a disability. And so that has been so much of her journey. And it hasn't been until these last few years where she has really opened up as a writer, as an advocate for the disability community, and then infusing her blackness into that work. So I really think that I probably came into my level of being more vocal and proud of my Blackness before her. But now I'm inspired by her to continue because it's never one and done. You're proud of your identity completely. There are days where I'm like, I struggle to still feel like I have the right to say that I'm Black. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what I am inspired by and influenced by in terms of my sister's journey is she is finally at a place where she is so unapologetically who she is whether that is Black, whether that is a woman living with a disability, that when I look at her, I'm like, okay, okay, one, we're competitive. So I'm like, she's not about to one-up me (laughs) in confidence. And so there's that. But then there's also just being inspired by, okay, this is who I am. And she encourages me to do that. And here's Azaria speaking about how her relationship with her older sister has also influenced and shaped her. I should also say that my half-sister, who we don't use half-sister, but she is my Mm half-sister, Same dad, different mom, and she is a beautiful, black, darker complexion woman. And that is where I based my standards of beauty growing up because I wanted to be like my older sister. I appreciated hearing various people speak about their relationships with their siblings. And also, one of the meaningful experiences to come from working on this podcast was having the opportunity to interview my brother, Ian. I felt the same way about interviewing my sister, Tyla. Can we talk about those interviews for a moment? I'd love to. Here's Ian introducing himself. My name is Ian Burnley. I'm a My name is Ian Burnley. I'm 37 years old. I'm a visual artist and I identify as a biracial person. Nice. And also importantly, you're my brother also. Yes, I am, I am Malcolm's brother. <laughs> and here's Tyla. Okay. All right. Well, wait, can I say I'm your sister, right? Yeah. Yeah. You are my sister. They're going to know. I'm going to tell them. This this, Yeah. This is a podcast that you're going to interview me Mm -hmm. and your friend's going to interview their brothers. Yes. Yeah. I'm your sister. My name is Tyler Taylor, sister (laughs) of Darylise Lyons. A little awkward and a lot endearing, but clearly they're not regularly sharing their life stories on podcasts. No. And in fact, sharing our life stories in very personal ways wasn't all that common in my house. I find it fascinating, Malcolm, that you and I have both chosen to write about and podcast about and publicly delve into our racial identities and self-conceptions, whereas our siblings have done that exploration in more inward-facing ways. Inward-facing is right. As much as we grew up together and have a close relationship, when it comes to race, there was a lot that Ina and I never spoke about. Our parents, for better or worse, let us stumble our way through self-discovery about who we were in the world. I don't have a lot of memories of our parents talking a lot about race, but I think that was also part of an intentional move by them to try to be as inclusive as possible 
I share that. And I also agree that was intentional. Yeah, it definitely always felt intentional looking back. Yeah, I feel like my parents, our parents never drew a lot of attention to their different backgrounds. The fact that they come from different racial backgrounds. So there was nothing really special or different about it for me until much later in life when I learned that other people didn't have that sort of experience, that maybe our experience growing up was a little bit more unique than most. There are certainly a lot of people that have that experience, but it's not broadly recognized, I guess. So I never at any point believed that there was anything wrong with people of different races mingling and mixing with one another. That was actually surprising when I learned that there are stigmas and the broader society at large, that there are people that actually are against that. That surprised me, you know, when I was older. It's interesting that Ian spoke about feeling somewhat insulated around race growing up. Tyla and I came to the same realization that we didn't have a lot of racial identity discussions in our house either. I mean, we talked about it for sure, but we didn't ever have conversations about potential barriers or challenges. Ty, why do you think we didn't talk much about race as a family? I don't know. I think we didn't talk about race because it was just like your biracial end of conversation. There's nothing else that you need to know. That's who you are. When I think back on that, it's been super affirming to just be like, you're biracial. That's who you are. Anyone asks, that's what you say. And be proud of that. And also, maybe we didn't talk about it because we were raised with a lot of our white side of the family, and it's an uncomfortable conversation for them to be having, and they might not know how to navigate it when we're the only two like children of color in the family. I think it's interesting because you made a point earlier about how I was raised. I went to a lot of Black Books Galore mm-hmm. events. My mom had Black boyfriends who were Black, not mm-hmm. biracial like your mm-hmm. dad. I was best friends with the Foster's kids and stuff. And so I grew up with a lot of, I felt like racial representation that was pretty well-rounded. I did did not grow up with that. Did you wish you did? Oh my gosh. In hindsight, a hundred percent. That's something that's really important that I'd like to give my kids. Like, I don't even really remember. I remember having like books with different family structures, for example, growing up. I don't really remember reading books of different, ethnic backgrounds in the same way that I know you did going to those meetings with other biracial children and stuff. I don't know if it was a little bit like, you know, how there are always more pictures of the firstborn and stuff like that. I think I just treated it as that a little bit. And you were raised by a single mom at that point where I had my biracial dad in my life for a while. And so I think that's part of what I've attributed to. You were living with your white family all the time where I had my biracial dad in my life. And then we would go visit his family. I think maybe they thought I was getting that representation, but at school, I definitely wasn't. And studying, I definitely wasn't. Tyla and I look very different from each other. And Malcolm, Ian shared about that in regards to him and you in episodes six and seven. So hopefully listeners will check those episodes out. Anyway, in some ways, I feel like my sister and I have lived two different lives around race and have vastly different personalities, but our views regarding race and identity are similar. 
Still, there was a really beautiful mirroring and validation that happened when we opened up and started speaking about race and our upbringings and our identities. And it's kind of sad that we hadn't ever had that kind of intimate conversation until she was 27 and I was 39. To be fair, that's pretty typical. Here's Charlotte Gill putting it bluntly. I think there's often a lot of silence in mixed race families. (laughs) There is a lot of silence. But as time goes on, more multiracial families are having these conversations, and there have been more articles and books geared toward helping parents talk to their kids about race. Don't get me wrong, that's extremely valuable. But for me, there was something especially rich about speaking with my brother that went beyond talking to one of my parents. That ability to connect with a sibling and share deep discussions about these issues is something Drew Almond has been missing since his brother Adam's passing. The loss has left Drew with a hole in his heart, but has also shaped his life, inspiring him to follow his passions and to pursue a career that, by its very nature, connects him with his indigenous ancestry and community. I had a brother, Adam, who is my only, I have half siblings, but he was the only one who has the same mother and father, mixed race, half white, half indigenous. And I think We kind of had a relationship that only we understood because of that. We were in the same exact circumstances near the same age. He, I think, had an even more complicated relationship than I did with this biracial background. He was someone who had red hair and would get freckly. So I think he had an even harder time explaining to people that part of himself. But he passed away in 2021. That's why I'm using past tense, just to kind of clarify. But he, I think, toward the end, really did feel strongly about getting closer to our family history and learning more about it. I think, like me, he had a complicated history in that regard. And I'll point out, and this is something that has rung true for me, and it's something that's come up again and again in my new work, Indigenous people are maybe the only race in the United States that has to consistently prove their identity to non-Native people, just in general. And then you extrapolate that further, and the tribes that they're members of also have to substantiate their legitimacy to the government in order to just gain back the sovereignty that they had before European contact. So it's a constant thing that we're always dealing with. And I've taken comfort in knowing that's not just my experience, that it's a lot of people's experience. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I think I remember last time that we spoke, you had shared about how losing your brother also coincided with the pandemic. It coincided with some other really major things. And are you willing to talk more about how that experience changed you? Yeah, I think I can do that. So in addition to As you mentioned, it it happened during COVID, which was tumultuous for everybody, a period where a lot of us were probably reflecting on what we were doing with our lives, what made us happy, what brought us joy, what didn't bring us joy. And that coincided with my brother suffering from a mental illness that eventually led to him taking his own life, which was really hard for all of us. But it was something that really made me rethink my own choices and what I owed myself as well as my family. And if nothing else, the new job that I have has allowed me to become closer to an entire part of my family that I either didn't know or didn't know very well. 
in addition to a whole history of the people that I come from. And just to tell you what Drew's new job is, Drew is currently the project director for the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium. And I think that has as much to do with my own choices that I maybe would have come to on my own, as much as having a wake-up call of my brother's experience. And I'll just put a bow on that by mentioning the first time I visited the reservation in many years was to scatter Adam's ashes in the river where we used to swim near my grandparents' house that I mentioned. And I don't want to pretend like that was this miracle moment where I realized that I want to work in this community, but it was around the same time. And I you know, just happened to be in Richmond at the time on a trip with friends and took a detour to do this thing that I really wanted to do. And I think it definitely impacted me and made me combine those two ideas of working within that culture and that community of missing this place that I identified so closely with family and having this very personal moment to honor my brother. Drew opening up about his brother made an indelible imprint on my heart. And it wasn't long after speaking with him that I had my conversation with Tyla. As she and I wrapped up our interview, I asked my little sister a question. Do you think moving forward, we should have more of these conversations or is there value to us talking about this or talking about it with mom or is it? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think any conversation where you're trying to understand your identity more or trying to understand racial identity in a deeper way, of course, well-intentioned in the right circumstances is like so amazing. And we do a lot of professional development here around identity exploration I think all of that is super valuable. And if you're not going to talk about it with your family, who else are you going to talk about it with? Those are hopefully, even if it's your chosen family, like those are hopefully the most important people and the people you feel safest with. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you. I really love you. And I'm glad that I'm really glad we had this conversation. Me too. I didn't mind that it was recorded. Well, I still (laughs) mind a little bit. Would have been fine having the conversation, just me over lunch or something. But yeah, fine. All right. Well, when I come visit you, let's have this conversation like part two over lunch, or we can just have it anytime. And I promise I won't record it. Okay. Thanks, (laughs) Sarah. I'll keep your phone so I can just check that you haven't pressed the record button. That's true. All right. Well, I love you. Regardless of how you define family or have experienced family, if there's one thing I learned from putting this episode together, it's that we all want to be loved and understood by those closest to us. And in more instances than not, talking about multiraciality rather than hiding from it enhances those bonds with our loved ones. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our remaining two episodes. And if you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. Thanks as well to Emily Previty, our stellar producer, editor, and fact checker, and her team at Covenda Media, and Paul Kondo, our exceptional editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible, and to Gene Son, their Director of Collaborations. 
And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.